it occurs to me as we are gathered in this moment, in worship together, in this as a congregation, in the day in, day out, as we gather, our children are gathered in the religious education wing. We are here because we care. We are here because we understand that the power of compassion, that the desire for justice and right relationship, that these are worthy ventures. We are here because of our values of generosity, of being connected with everything, of being connected across perspectives, that we have a pluralist approach to the world that we care for ourselves and our neighbors, though our neighbors are certainly different than we are. That we respect the inherent worth and dignity of every person, knowing that we are fully flawed as well as human beings in this moment. We value information, science, truth, And we value a society where people have a say. We are stronger, we know, when we are connected, when we live out of compassion. What's also true is that we are vulnerable when we are separated and can't find the path to connection. Hannah Arendt, a German-American historian and political theorist of the 20th century, writes about totalitarianism, about connection, about context. In her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, that she addresses the circumstances of World War II, what led into it and what happened during it. She's particularly known for talking about the banality of evil and for explaining how ordinary people become actors in violent and terror-based and terror systems, in totalitarian systems. How any one of us can be a participant. And part of what she does is to look at the heart of where does that come from in our human experience. And she makes a case for how loneliness, just the simple presence of loneliness, the experience of that, can leave us vulnerable. Samantha Rose Hill explores Arendt and loneliness and its impact in the article Where Loneliness Can Lead. Arendt distinguishes between isolation and loneliness. She says, Isolation and loneliness are not the same. I can be isolated, that is, being in a situation in which I cannot act because there is nobody who will act with me. There's no interchange. And I can be in that place of isolation without being lonely. And she says, I can be lonely, that is, in a situation in which I, as a person, feel myself deserted by all human companionship. I can be lonely 
without being isolated. You can be lonely in the crowd of people, for example. Samantha Rose Hill says, totalitarianism uses isolation to deprive people of human companionship, making action in the world impossible, while destroying the space of solitude. So you're in a place where you can't act, and that destroys the option of solitude. The iron band of totalitarianism, as Arendt calls it, destroys a person's ability to move, to act, to think, while turning each individual in their loneliness against all others, including themselves. So loneliness is when you're turned against all others, including yourselves in this totalitarian system. You can't move, there's no place to go, and you even can't connect with yourself. So then the world, all existence, becomes a wilderness where neither experience or thinking are possible. So, in our early 20th century, we had conditions that were ready to turn that experience, that totalitarian effort, into a place of wilderness. Where a few individuals and other leaders, or a few individuals saw the opportunity and acted, and a few leaders were unable to set a boundary. So, Following the Great War, World War I, the treaty that followed, the Treaty of Versailles, it stripped Germany of resources and its ability to function, fulfill its financial obligations, or support its people. I mean, there are consequences for participating in a world war. And what also came as a result fed a deep anger and hopelessness this was the case in Germany. This was the case in Italy. And so people there sought solutions, like turning to a strong leader with wide authority and great power and rule. That mythic past was the narrative. We were great, and now we suffer because of others. How shall we be great again? We shall do it by defeating the other. And the method was control, complete, specific, violent, not based on truth or science, but emotional connection with the leader. Not family, even, with emotional connection with the leader. The foundation of fascism, says ThoughtCo, is a combination of ultra-nationalism, the extreme devotion to one's nation over all others, along with a widely held belief among the people that the nation must and will somehow be saved or reborn. So rather than working for concrete solutions to economic, political, and social problems, like actually getting in and getting the work done, the fascist rulers divert people's focus and win public support and elevate the need for a national rebirth and a virtual religion, in essence. The nation is the faith. 
And to this end, the fascists encouraged the growth of cults of national purity, national unity. And in this case, in pre-World War II Europe, those movements were going for the idea that non-Europeans were genetically inferior. And we must make those who are genetically superior right. We must make them better and stronger and have the national pure race. And these folks leading into the wars were setting up the steadying the stage by destabilizing moments, by destabilizing the government, by destabilizing the people. People couldn't rely on the government, in essence. They must need a new leader. So here again is the mythic narrative of the great past taken away by other less worthy people. Those of us who were so put upon are now victims and we must become strong again. I don't know. Sounds a little familiar. Sounds a little, dare I say, current. And what Arendt also points out is that whether or not you have totalitarian um, societies actually enacting, you know, groups actually practicing, it's now in the system. It's now in our uh, mindset as, as human beings. We know what this looks like. And people, it's more likely to be perpetuated and more likely to be appealing by those who want this power. So now we all have to figure out the path. And that includes even folks who are not going along with the ideology of where a, a fascist or totalitarian system might be, but those who might be tempted by the, the methods. Because people all over the place, including Unitarian Universalists, have this habit of glorifying and romanticizing the past. And sometimes out of religious trauma from the past, might think that liberal religion is, you know, because we are more clear thinkers. We are more rational than everyone else, so we must be better. I can't tell you how long I have heard that thread as, as someone who's grown up Unitarian Universalist. We have our own work to do in being mindful of these methods and tactics that are destructive to all of us. We have to be able, for example, to tell complex and painful truths about white Protestant history and including Unitarian Universalism. And the painful truth of our history, there's a I'll give an example, the congregation in uh, uh, Needham, Massachusetts. What they're working on in particular is the fact that at least one of the ministers in the past, one of the people who served that congregation, also enslaved people. Complicated, right? Minister, white male minister, enslaved African-Americans. And that's part of the history, and that's real. 
So we need to be able, in whatever our context, that's why we're not just talking about fascism as like this thing out there, these people across the river, these people across the country, people in Washington and wherever or around the world. It's not just out there. It's what we also have to be mindful of for ourselves. As we struggle to address racial and ethnic diversity and our own participation in white supremacy. What we can do, what we can do is keep practicing what is of worth to us, of what we say we value and hold true. My colleague Cecilia Kingman, I love the way she starts this moment. She's like, Truth is real and facts are facts. Let's not forget it. We like science. Let's keep like, liking science. And let's study and let's talk. And let's keep building relationship with one another, including the chance to build relationship and address complicated history that might address generational cycles of harm we continue to affirm inherent worth of every person because no one is disposable. Can I get an amen? No one is disposable, right? Let's start there. And that we are spectacularly diverse. Learning about fascism is a way to put love into action. Not avoid difficult conversations, not avoid and just hope for the best. We need to protect what is under attack, the institutions that do foster, welcome, and range and multiple perspectives. Not to restore them to a previous time, but what those institutions do now and for the future, for our education, for our collective exploration and relationship. We keep practicing. We keep loving. We might, in fact, feel lonely that there is no way we can move and change, but then let's come back together again and say, ah, we can move and change together. This is one but one moment, as we're gathering in service today, this is just one moment. This is one conversation. And I will guarantee as soon as you leave the space and check your phone, there's going to be something new to spike your adrenaline and add to the fear of the world. I mean, really, right? But we don't have to be so hijacked. At least not forever. It might take a minute. We get to remember, if nothing else, how beautiful and powerful you are and we are. Because we are glorious and tenacious and, enjoy, and enduring and joyful and fully human and part of this world. We are. Amen.